Welcome to the Clemson Dubcast. It is Wednesday, February 8th. I just filed a story to tigerillustrate.com about the notion of tight end usage. Of course, Garrett Riley is going to make it a prominent part of his scheme at Clemson. But Nick Saban's hire of Tommy Reese got me thinking. One of Reese's specialties at Notre Dame was using tight ends, not just in the run game, but in the pass game as well. You see Georgia with their tight ends, including, of course, a superstar Brock Bowers, establishing themselves as versatile threats who can do both. Maybe new age offense in college football right now, so to speak, is going to heavily incorporate those rare tight ends who can both be dynamic pass catchers and also not only aren't liabilities as blockers, but maybe strengths. Anyway, fully exploring that in an article later today at tigerillustrated.com. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse and neglect, car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864-990-4581 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, Media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational set like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Okay, to our conversation with Ron Green Jr., an old-school newspaper guy, but also someone who has found a way to adapt and continue making a living at typing things. And he is a an absolute master at typing things, one of the great stylists out there in sports writing. Loved catching up with him. Here we go. Okay, I am uh, honored to have uh, Ron Green Jr., a sports writing institution uh, in the in the Carolinas and beyond. How you doing, man? I'm doing very well. Enjoying uh, enjoying wintertime around here. It's not doing a lot for my golf game, but uh, that's all right. I uh, I have to offer congratulations to the recent uh, for the recent news of your lifetime achievement award in journalism from the PGA, and you're gonna I guess receive that uh, at the at the Masters in April. Really cool stuff, man. It's very cool. Uh, I, I'll be honest, I didn't see it coming. Uh, I don't feel like I'm old enough for a lifetime achievement anything quite yet, but. Uh, as I keep telling people, if they're going to give it to me, I'm going to take it. So, yeah, it's one of the 
biggest honors in uh, our little niche of golf writing. And uh, to be on a list that includes my dad, that includes Dave Kindred and John Hopkins and Jaime Diaz and Furman Bisher and, you know, all of those guys, uh, it's it's very meaningful. I listened to your recent appearance on Tommy Tomlinson's Southbound podcast, and it was awesome. And that's actually what hatched the the idea uh, for this interview. And a big part of what I'm curious about is, as things, the newspaper industry, of course, over the last decade plus has turned upside down, um, people have either had to reinvent themselves to stay, uh, to continue doing what they're doing, you know, working with their fingers and typing sentences or, 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 or what have you, or they've had to go do something else. And you have managed to reinvent yourself um, in a pretty impressive way. You're, you, I, then correct me if I'm wrong here, if uh, some of this isn't accurate, but I guess for more than a decade, you've written for the Global Golf, uh, Global Golf Post. Yes, this is my 11th year with the with Global Golf Post. It's a digital golf magazine. Uh, it's the basic version of it. Every Monday, we send out a digital golf magazine uh, sort of around the world, uh, largely in the United States, but also in the UK. And uh, I cover the PGA Tour uh, for, for Global Golf Post. And if anybody's interested, it is free at globalgolfpost.com, the magazine. We also have, uh, as the New World sort of mandates we have uh some pay services we have a we call thing called ggp plus that you can get daily stories from us as well and we also have ggp business covering the business of golf which there's plenty to write about and coming soon ggp women uh which is debuting later this month so we got a lot going on but i I mostly just focus on the pga tour and or live golf which uh has sort of dominated the game for the last year or so so it's been fun i got i loved my let's see i worked let's see i got out of school started in 79 i worked in chapel hill at the daily newspaper up there for about four or five years i went to the uh the old greenville piedmont afternoon newspaper briefly before i went to the greenville news was there for several years during the danny ford cliff ellis days and ken hatfield days then went to the Charlotte Observer, where I worked in the Raleigh-Durham Bureau for three years, uh, coinciding with my three years up there when basketball was at its peak. Duke won back-to-back national championships, and Carolina won the third one. So I, I went three for three there, which was pretty good. Then came worked in Charlotte for almost 25 years and been doing this since. I guess we'll go ahead and jump off into your time in Greenville, covering Clemson during some pretty uh, uh, revered days uh, for, for Clemson football fans what's what's what was the time frame there and i just want to sort of paint a picture of, of some of the things you remember from that from those days um i'll get the, the years a little off probably, but mid 80s through 19 uh the end of 89 early 1990 i guess uh you know it's funny i grew up with my dad being a sports writer and covering games through the years i went to clemson it seemed like the Clemson North Carolina football game every year was on my birthday weekend in November. So obviously every other year they'd play in Clemson, but I would go to Clemson games a lot. And, and I may have, I think I was there early enough. There was not an upper deck on either side. Now maybe there was one on one side, but, uh, going way, way back. And, uh, so I've seen them run down the hill for 
decades upon decades. But, you know, coming to Greenville when I did, uh, I was there during Danny's time and, and, you know, understood just all that football is down there. And it was, uh, you know, uh, I mean, he was a huge figure. He went, we went back and forth some. I was not always his favorite person, but when you're working <laughs> for the Greenville News covering Clemson and, you know, some things happened that probably made that understandable. But, I mean, we got along fine, and I would see him at basketball games long after I'd left and, you know, like old friends catching up. And, um, I mean, he was – he was. I understand why he's – people at Clemson feel about Danny Ford the way they do because – Nobody, Dabo included, I don't think fit has ever fit Clemson better than Danny Ford did, and what he did and taking that program. You know, my dad was covering that Gator Bowl when Danny was uh, coaching his first game and all that happened there. But he got to spend time with Danny the day of the game, I think, either that morning or the afternoon before, and just talks about him being in the hotel room with Danny and talking to him. And you know, suddenly this has all been placed on him and not fully realizing what it was all going to lead to, but uh, he did pretty well down there. What do you remember? Do you remember any specific uh, details on when you, <laughs> when you would make him unhappy in, in your coverage of Clemson? Well, I just, you know, I don't remember specific things. You know, there were, it seems like they were arguing about athletic dorms and things like that back then. Uh, you know, I don't remember all the detail. You know, I remember he used to be able to just sort of go in the football offices there and sitting in his office plenty of times and having to move the uh, chewing tobacco boxes out of the way to sit down there. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's funny. The one I remember was after he was gone and he was, there was, there were rumors he was going to run for public office. I don't know, state representative or something like that. And I remember they, I had to go somewhere, like a basketball game or some event somewhere. And I think Danny was having a big time by the time I finally found him. And I had to ask him that question. I knew he didn't want to answer. And uh, he sees me and I hear him say something like, you know, hey, Ron Green, what are you here for? Something like, well, I just got to ask you, is there anything, any truth to this rumor? You might be running for public office. And he just looks at me and smiles. He goes, I'm not saying yay, and I'm not saying nay, <laughs> but if I did, I'd be a pretty darn good one. Oh, that is and, great. And I, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I remember when when he got fired, I'd been at a basketball game that night, and I remember driving out, uh, I, I, yeah, a basketball game, because I remember driving out and looking over at, I guess, Jervy Athletic Center and seeing – Bobby Robinson's light on and Danny's light on. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, they're all, they're here awfully late. And, uh, not thinking anything of it until about six o'clock the next morning, I get a phone call. So I go, uh, uh, and all that. And then all that happened after that, the, the, the fans, the pro- protest, the candlelight vigil on Danny's behalf and all that. And, uh, I remember Karen Rosen of the Atlanta journal constitution, uh, walking in this March, from the vigil up to the president's house, I guess it is. And fans are just tromping through that garden area and stepping over azaleas and all that. And, uh, the, the line that stayed with me was, uh, asking a fan like, well, can you just explain why you're doing this? And then 
person just looks at us and goes, well, this is what college football is all about. And <laughs> I said, well, I, yeah, I don't know. And then, I mean, I, I remember, you know, they introduced Ken Hatfield and who was a really nice man and, and, you know, had some pretty darn good football teams, but it just, you know, that was stepping into the impossible situation there. Just backtracking a little bit. You said before the basketball game, when you did not yet know that he was out, you're just sort of curious. I mean, there there has to be a feeling of uneasiness just given the tenor, uh, the strife between Danny and the administration that had been going on for a while. So are you thinking, and you might not remember, but as you drive over to Jervy, are you like, I'm just going to see what it looks like over here to see if anything's going on as you look and see that their lights are on or what? Just as a reporter, I guess you're just you're just curious. Well, I thought, yeah, I thought a lot of those things the next day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm thinking it's probably ten thirty or eleven. I've written a story about a basketball game, ready to go home, and uh, you know, yeah, you know, later I thought I probably maybe I should just hung around out there in the parking lot and just waited to see what was going on. But uh, I didn't do that. Uh, I don't know if I put all those things together at that moment. I, I just really don't remember. But I do remember the next morning everything sort of, you know, everything starting then. Do you remember who broke the story? I don't remember that. I remember Woody White, who I worked with, who was sort of the main Clemson football guy, um, calling me and saying he had heard it. And from there, I don't remember. I'm sure. I'm sure I probably went in the Greenville News office, which I, I mean, I'm guessing I think that building's not even there anymore. But because uh, uh, when I lived in Greenville, uh, it was right before Greenville became the Greenville it is today. Yeah. I mean, it was there was not much there. I lived out uh, over off East North Street, and there wasn't much downtown. I mean, there was a hot dog king and some other things <laughs> downtown. And I remember they were starting to build the whatever the Peace Center, the Arts Center there when I was leaving. And obviously, everything transformed. And the times I've been back, I'm like. Where was this when I was a young single man? <laughs> you might not have left. That's right. It's interesting. I think I remember Danny maybe like a decade ago acknowledging, you know, if we could have just calmed down, meaning we, him and the administration, the president, and just taking a deep breath and not been so stubborn on both sides, we probably could have worked it out. Is that sort of the takeaway that you had, that it was just too bullheaded competing forces and they just weren't neither side was going to back down. Yeah. I mean, that's the way it seems now. I remember he won a lot of things and, you know, cause later he went and spoke at a sportsman's club or something. As I recall, this was the first public thing he'd done, maybe in Anderson or something. And he made some comment like somebody said, will you get back in coaching? And he said, well, I'd like to, but only at a place where the football program is as important as the engineering school. Wow. And I was like, mm, wow, probably not what you needed to say right there. But, you know, I mean, he went on, you know, it, it would be love, great to think what if they had just worked through all this and he could have stayed and you wonder, you know, would he have been there Bear Bryant or whatever? I don't know. But, uh, you know, I mean, he fit it perfectly and, uh, you know, uh, you know, help. I mean, Frank Howard obviously helped sort of create the culture of Clemson football, but Danny took it to a place that had never been. And, you know, you saw afterward that it was not the same for a long time. And now, obviously, you know, it's in the stratosphere again. 
what I've never been able to really understand is how he did not understand where things were headed in college athletics. Like you said, the, the, the all athlete, all football dorms were being phased out. Education was becoming much more of a prominent uh, sort of mandate. And actually the, the building that he was opposing um, as he fought for an athletic dorm was Vickery Hall, which ended up being really kind of a pioneer um, sort of institution of, 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 uh, educating athletes. Uh, I think it was like the first of its kind with uh, Billy DeAndre playing a, a central role. So mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, I don't know if the lesson there is this is what happens when a coach gets too big. He's, he, he's that insulated and that far removed from the daily realities of, 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 of a, of a governing, you know, a sport that does have a governing body. I guess you can insert a joke about where things are now in that respect. But, sure. but I don't. I, I'm, I'm guessing that it was just that that he was that he got that big, um, that that he really either ignored or didn't understand where things were headed. Yeah, I I, I think the landscape was starting to change then. I mean, I, I I can't I can't believe where it is today. But given where it was then, yeah, I think uh, yeah, I, I I think in retrospect he. Pro- I'm sure I would hope he would do some things differently. And, but you know, football coaches to me, particularly college football coaches, they are the ultimate control freaks. I mean, they want to control, manage everything. And I think at that time they were, you know, they were really able to do that. I mean, with athletic dorms and things like that. And you could almost, you know, put this invisible wall around there, protect them. And and here's what we do. Here's who we are. This is our world and we live in it and all that. And I think there was some of that just trying to have the control. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, I look at it today and, and wonder, almost wonder why guy, coaches get into it because there's so much. I mean, just the recruiting thing. I mean, I, I used to hate recruiting. Uh, I remember working at the old Chapel Hill newspaper, which before I got there, basketball recruiting was a big deal in the newspaper and we didn't want to follow it. And I remember somebody telling us about recruiting. Would you please write about recruiting? It doesn't even have to be true. Just give us something to talk about. I'm like, well, that's sort of, that's sort of not the right way, but you know, and now coaches have to recruit. Then when they get them on campus, they have to recruit them again. Just it's crazy. Ron, there's a current coach out there who recently told me, he said, now there's four signing days essentially. Cause you have your, your two high school signing days or signing periods early you know december and then in february well then yeah. you have your portal deadlines and you have to make sure that all your guys or most of your guys are happy enough to stick around and, and not jump ship mm-hmm. it's 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 you know i mean i'm sitting there uh our daughter went to north carolina and we have football tickets up there and i've known mark may for you know 30 years and I'm watching this, watching Drake May play, and then thinking Mac Brown's got to go back and re-recruit him. Yeah, he's got to keep him there because people are coming after, you know. So the the you know the byproduct of success is well, they may go somewhere else now. You know, you know. I mean, Jalen Hurts did all right when he moved, but uh, it's just it's a different landscape. And I, you know, I haven't always had a fondness for college basketball. Looking at Roy Williams and Mike Shashevsky and. Jay Wright and Bob McKillop and others. Now, granted, some of it is age, but some of it, I think, is the, you know, just the nature of the game and the sport now. I, I don't think they, 
you know, Dean Smith always said he retired not because of basketball, but because of all the other stuff. And I think all the other stuff is multiplied to such a degree. Now you wonder, you know, I, you know, there aren't going to be many more behinds. I don't think it, it, I mean, I just wonder what the cost is, uh, the, in the raw numbers of, of college athletes. Of course, you mentioned Jalen Hurts. Uh, there are countless others who have um, benefited, uh, and, and, and it's been the right move uh, to go. Uh, J- um, Justin Fields, heck, you know, Sam Hartman. I mean, that's a, that's a great, good move for him. Um, yeah, and he did it the right way, sort of got his degree and yeah. had that other year. And so, yeah, yeah. But in terms of being able to basically immediately – transfer at the drop of a hat i know that it's basically legally uh, the, the, the amateurism model i mean the supreme court has said it. it it's just not defensible so there's only so much you can do but i just wonder the raw numbers the casualty of there being such a i guess no not restrictions but no motivations to stick it out anymore um i'm not trying to be get off my lawn guy, but it seems just factual to me that there are going to be lots of kids now who in the past would have said, man, that freshman year was just hell, but I am so glad that I stuck it out. I'm so glad that I listened to my coaches and here I am with a degree here. I am a better person for that perseverance and determination that I showed three years ago. Now it just seems like there are going to be a lot of kids who don't go through that. I don't know if I'm sounding like a Pollyanna, no. but but I'm just curious for your 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 take on that angle of it. Well, I saw somebody recently wrote or said or whatever something about you know for all these years college athletes didn't get didn't get enough for what they did. You know they deserve more, and, and it was not fair to them. And and now that they've gotten everything, it's created a sense of chaos out there. Now, maybe it settles down over time. You know, the NIL thing is so new still and all this. And, and you know, and the portal, I don't know if they fully understood how how busy the portal was going to be. But, uh, you know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm 66 years old. I, I remember uh, the old days, which weren't that long ago. Uh, I think while I fully believe the players should get uh, something for what they're doing, uh, what has what has happened now? I don't love where it is right now. I, I, I wish there was, you know, a, a a middle ground somewhere that sort of stabilized things a little bit. But um, that's just an old guy wishing for something that's not going to happen. I don't know how much you read or have read over the last couple of years, just in this sort of national conversation from a media perspective. But it seems to me, at least, there aren't there haven't been enough people saying writing saying whatever wait a minute what are we doing here let's let's be careful because if we do this unfettered transfer portal thing uh it might affect graduation rates greatly because when you have thousands of kids who are transferring that that means their chances of ultimate graduation assuming they do end up finding a landing spot have to be severely diminished because of the progress toward degree requirements and transferred classes and things like that but I never heard any of that. I, I, and I think, to me, I, I felt kind of the media, in a certain respect, kind of cheated the populace in terms of just it being just full bore, 
jumping on board with that overcorrection as you just sort of described it. Do you see this? Did you see enough scrutiny of of that momentum um, that was that was going so quickly? I guess a couple of years ago, not just with the portal, but to for NIL and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I haven't read that much about graduation rates and all that stuff. And yeah, it does. You know, it is ultimately supposed to be about education. I mean, I'm not naive enough to think that players aren't athletes aren't going to school just to play the sports and you know take them from this level to the next level to the next level. Uh, but, you know, at its essence, it is about education. I think that's gotten lost. And I don't think, you know, you can't just put it on the players. I mean, look at Southern Cal and UCLA jumping conferences. Look at yeah. Texas and Oklahoma jumping conferences. I mean, it the message comes from the top, yep. you know? I mean, it, it's about the money. And it is, I mean, money can screw up everything. And I think it's done a pretty darn good job of messing up college athletics. Back when you were... In your newspaper days, in your early newspaper days, um, it seemed there was a division between beat writer and columnist. So your job as a beat writer covering Clemson was just the facts, tell them, tell them the story every day in an understated way. And there probably weren't as many opportunities for you to say, hey, here's what I think about this hire or about this play call in this game. Am I... Is, is that the accurate description of the way things largely were back in those days? Yeah, I, I think, you know, beat writers were sort of the meat and potatoes guy. Go tell us what happened. Tell us why, you know, why it happened. Uh, what's next? Who You know, tell the stories and all that stuff. And then the columnists, you know, their job is to come in, offer an opinion or a perspective and if they want to be critical, they can. If they want to just sing the praises, they can do that too. Uh, and at various times, especially if there's, I don't know, difficult stories or you know things that are going to land the wrong way with the people you're covering, I've had a lot of editors say, well, not fair to the beat writer. I mean, he's got to be in there every day and see these people and you know, if we're going to be critical of it, let somebody else be the one who writes the hard piece saying this, you know, the beat writer can write the details, but if somebody wants to criticize, you know, that's the columnist's job. And, uh, I don't, it's not protecting the beat writer, but it's you know, sort of a separation of powers there a little bit. Uh, I think that's all kind of blurred a lot now. I, I don't, well, especially with newspapers. I mean, they hardly have sports staffs anymore. Uh, so, you know, and columnists always marveled that in some cases the columnists were the first people to be cut when they started cutting staffs around newspapers. And I'm like, wouldn't that be the last person you cut? I mean, that's one of the reasons you come to read them, read the papers, that person's perspective. So, um, you know, uh, I mean, I've been involved on both sides of it. I, I never was great at the really hard digging stories. I, you know, I've said many times, like, if you're looking for the investigative reporter, the guy who can go dig it out of the details and all that stuff, I'm probably not your guy. I, I just, I, I don't think that way. I mean, I got things done, but uh, some people live. I mean, that's oxygen to them. They love doing those di deep dives and chasing things. And I'd always marvel at, you know, we'd have a meeting about this or that. Like, how'd you find that out? Where'd you, where'd that come from? And, you know, then the, they just would have all this stuff that I, I just wouldn't think that way about it. And uh, so I think I'm more of a broad brush kind of guy, but uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I've all, you know, you know, once in a while, columnists got to get 
pretty darn critical about things. And, uh, you know, when you do, you sure do hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget sitting in the uh, press box at the Music City Bowl 2006. I was working for the Charleston Post and Courier. And Clemson was just playing terribly uh, down big against Kentucky. Uh, Clemson's season was promising at one point, I think about eight games in, but then they just sort of fell apart toward the end. And uh, they were losing that Music City Bowl. And Ken Berger, as he was always known to do, he was going to get it done as soon as he could. And so he's already writing his column in the third quarter, maybe even at halftime. And that's lead, Ken Berger. That's, yes. That was Ken Berger. So the lead paragraph, it's Nashville dash. Clemson needs to fire Tommy Bowden in paragraph. And I'm just thinking, whoa, man, this is huge. You know, this guy is calling for his firing. Okay, so now 17 years later, it just – well, and like you said, we don't even really have many columnists right now, but the the, the few that are out there – it doesn't have the same gravity now if a columnist out there types the same thing. And that feels like, I don't know. I sort of, I don't like that, you know, because it, you know, like you said, you need somebody to come in and, and uh, you know, parachute in and hold truth to power or, or say some strong things when they feel like it needs to be said. And then people, you know, the, the readers are like, Whoa, if this guy's saying Tommy needs to be fired, then man, maybe something really is wrong. Yeah, well, I think uh, among the things that have changed, obviously, there aren't that many columnists, you know, anymore or around. But with social media, everybody has a voice, and and the loudmouths and the cranks are just going to be the first ones out there. You know, I mean, they're going to fire somebody in the first quarter of the first game <laughs> yeah. just because you know they they punted when they should have gone for it on fourth down or something. And I, I I just think there's so much noise out there now that it gets. It becomes sort of white noise, but you you need you know the the uh, the voices that matter. I mean, you know, here in Charlotte with the hiring of uh, of Frank Wright, you know, after with the Panthers and whether they're going to keep Steve Wilkes and all that stuff, you know, uh, there, there are local voices there. But then you know because that's a national story, you know, there was a lot of interest in what do the national people, the people, you know, that. 15 voices that really resonate, you know, what do they say about this? And, you know, people obviously looking for validation and everything. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, when, whether it was my dad or whether it was Carlton Tudor up in Raleigh or, you know, or Ken or, or whomever would write something, you know, that those are the ones, you know, okay, I'll pay attention. You didn't have to always agree with them and that was fine. But, uh, you felt like they had a strong foundation and, you know, and if you're fortunate, lots of times, you know, a little bit more about things than the average guy sitting in the end zone, upper deck knows. Now he may be spending his money on the games and caring all about that. But I think, you know, we lots of times get access to things. And I mean, I, I've known things through this PGA tour to live golf, you know, thing that's going on i mean i've known things i couldn't write for a long time but you know it gives you perspective so when people are you know barking at you on email or whatever it's like you know you want like i know i know why this is happening or why i wrote this and uh you know so it, it helps when you have that you know uh 
this is my wife always says information is power. And if you feel like you're, you're, you're informed the right way that that helps when you're writing things like this. And I think, I think readers can pick up on that. Yeah. It, it's almost like things have evolved to a place where opinions, everybody out there has a freaking opinion, you know? And so there's a pressure on that beat writer during the game to say, what the heck was coach thinking when he punted there, you know, when you don't really have to do that, you don't have to, uh, or, or or this defensive back got burned on that play where you don't really know yet, you know, they could have been playing zone, you know, could have been a miscommunication with him and the safety or, or whatnot. But it seems like given how many opinions are out there from both fans and media that the opinion column doesn't have as much weight. And like you just said, it's really the information men who, have the most value now because they can tell you something like what I tell interns, college interns that we have, I say, if you can tell people something before anybody else can, uh, news wise, analysis wise or perspective, then you can make a living in this business still, regardless of, you know, what form yeah. that takes. Yeah. I mean, Adam Schefter has made a pretty darn good career for himself doing, getting NFL stuff. And then you get to the point, you know, in certain cases, you can get to the point where you're the person uh, they're going to let know because they know the information is going to get out. So, uh, you know, if you can be the person they go to, that's that's great. Uh, you know, there's some people in the business I've been around uh, who, you know, I, I just am amazed at what they know and when they know it. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I'm that – I'm sure I'm not that person. But there are people who just, you know – to this day, their careers are built on that. And, uh, that's, that's a great skill. I'm not totally comfortable with the way that Schefter and Woj do it. Cause it feels to me, I could be wrong that it's less shoe leather reporting and developing relationships. And it's more like cozying up and being best friends with the heavy hitters. I don't know. There's part of it that kind of turns me off a little bit. I don't know if you feel, if you get where I'm going or you feel the same way at all, or this is a different deal than 30 years ago when big news guys were, it was more the product of years of relationship building and trust and things like that. And now it's more agendas and this guy is going to tell our story the way we want it told. So I'm going to give it to him. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. I think, uh, I mean, I think, those guys work it really hard. I mean, they built their careers doing this. And yeah. I think they reach a point where, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it just keeps, you know, it comes to them a little bit because in effect, they're stars too. And so, you know, Hey, I know this star, I'm going to get this out there cause I want it out the right way. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah. I, I mean, there are guys in the golf business who, they're buddy buddies with uh, players. I mean, I have good acquaintances out there. I mean, I'm not going to eat dinner with them, but I mean, there are a few guys who I just, I'll text with back and forth, just, Hey, what's going on? Or sorry, you did this, blah, blah, blah. Um, but some guys, they just, you know, they latch on and almost want to be part of the little mm-hmm. group there. And, uh, you know, it's uh, that I've never been comfortable like that. You know, I remember people saying, you're not there to be their friend. You're there to write about them. And, you know, if, you know, there's a lot of guys in golf that I really like. They've been very nice to me. And I think we have really good relationships, but I'm not like 
calling them and sending them Christmas cards and doing all that. Uh, but you know, if there are a few that, Hey, if something's going on, can I call you? I'm not going to quote you. I just need, just tell me what's happening. So I know. And you know, one of the greatest things ever is, is back, particularly in newspaper days when there's a story you're chasing, you don't have to tell me everything's right, but tell me if it's wrong. Yeah. If it's, yeah. if it's wrong, tell me you might not want to do that. Yep. I, I, that's, that's, Boy, you hang up those from those phone calls like, oof, glad he told me that. <laughs> well, glad we didn't go with that. How did things end at the Observer for you? Was it something you did voluntarily or, or was it cut back? What, how, how did that happen? Um, the, the global golf thing sort of came to me and it came, I mean, it was another stroke of good fortune. I mean, I had seen the the downsizing of the observer had already begun so much was beginning to change. And, you know, I was sort of a guy without a specific beat. I had covered the, I'd been the main college guy in the triangle for a while, but then, uh, the merger with the Raleigh museum observer, obviously they were going to do all the stuff up there. I'd been an NBA writer for two or three years, uh, back in the Larry Johnson, Alonzo morning Muggsy, Del Curry days. So that was fun, but I, I mean, I, even then I was not an NBA guy and not still not. I mean, I wish our the Hornets here were better, but uh, um, it's not something I follow that closely. I, I'm not a big fan of the game they play. Uh, you know, I was one of the NFL. I was one of the Panther beat writers for two or three years uh, during the mostly during the Rivera. In fact, Ron Rivera and I arrived at the same time. Uh, and I, I mean one of the best people I've ever been around in sports or anywhere else. I just have the greatest respect for Ron Rivera. I actually did text with him this week because he's playing in the Pebble Beach Pro-Am. I just sent him a, hmm. and he, had, I was out there a couple of years ago when he was out just hanging out. He said, got a membership at one of the clubs out there and he called him one to see if I could play one morning. I couldn't, but, uh, um, so I did, did sort of send him a note, like play well and have fun. Uh, so he's terrific. But, uh, yeah, the observer thing was it was changing, and uh, you know when this opportunity came, uh, you know I took it. I mean, I, I could see enough guys of my age at various rounds, you know, you get the word, hey, uh, some big cuts are coming, and you'd wait to find out if you got the phone call that morning. And so uh, I got out just at the right time, and you know, uh, other than a couple guys, I mean. You know, uh, for the longest, for a good while, the Charlotte Observer literally did not have an office in Charlotte. They had sold the property where the building was, uh, and we're now it's a giant Bank of America tower and the Honeywell's world headquarters sit where our parking lot and our building used to be. I still look at that when I go to the stadium. And um, they moved uptown to, a, I think, one floor of the NASCAR tower for a while, then got out of that. And now they have apparently, after t- – time with everybody working remotely they they have they're in a place on the western edge of downtown i think just a small place with some cubicles but i was talking to one of the guys who still work there says well we never go in there so uh i don't know it's a different day and age i mean you know you see it at papers across the way i mean all the bitter route you know charlotte and raleigh was a rivalry now they're combined you know greensboro and winston-salem are essentially the same paper i mean even charleston which has done a great job of as family owned and maintaining what they've been, I think you started to see the squeeze a little bit. Uh, um, 
you know, I got to be there, be in it during some of the best of times. And, uh, you know, I, I, I still look at what the Washington Post and the New York Times do and think, if you can make the investment, look what you can do. Now, granted, they're worldwide things, but I think, you know, it was, we always talked about newspaper business, what a terrible model it was. You know, we would ask people to pay more, but we were giving them less. I, I just <laughs> yeah. never saw the value in that. Yeah, it was a vicious cycle. Um, yeah, like we have lost, there is so much loss when you no longer have, you know, both columnists who are, you know, prominent voices with, you know, gravity in their opinions. But also, I mean, good gosh, the Sunday sections during football season. Uh, oh, yeah. The Charlotte Observer, the State, the Raleigh newspaper. I mean, it was just amazing stuff for the average fan to consume. So I, th- I think we can both we can both sort of uh, at the same you know simultaneously grieve the loss of that while also saying, man, newspapers played a pretty big role in their own demise in not having any vision and how to handle the internet. And also, like you mentioned, when you were in Chapel Hill, it's like, oh, we don't really care about recruiting, just make something up, <laughs> you know, when there are clearly yeah, yeah. so many people who want to, wanted to read about recruiting. And yet the, the, the message from newspapers is, you, you, we're going to tell you what is important and you're going to like it. And that, that's just, that was terrible, just absolutely terrible. It's funny. I mean, when I worked at the Greenville News, no matter what your job was, unless you were Dan Foster, the longtime columnist there, you worked on Friday night and high school football season. Like I'd go cover a game, then I'd come in and get calls from around the state and do all that. That was sort of, you know, I loved when Clemson had a road game somewhere I could go on a Friday. So I got out of those Friday nights. Uh, but it, I mean, it was, and you know, the Greenville News for years had a story, now it might only be two sentences, but about every high school game played in the state on Friday nights. Mm. And I can remember literally Tom Layton calling like the the police office in some tiny town, hey, we're trying to get a report of the game. Do you know who won? Do you know somebody we call it? And we would, it wouldn't be much, but we'd have something about every one of the hundred games or whatever. And, you know, in Charlotte, it was a big deal. And now, Charlotte doesn't even have a Saturday paper. Mm. And they told us for years about how important high school football was. Well, wait a minute. Now you don't even have the paper the next day for all that people to read about all that stuff. So, you know, I know there's a way we moved it online and all that, but uh, it just not the same. Uh, you know, it was great when big events would come and you had big staffs and you could just, you know, th- I mean, the first time the Panthers went to the Super Bowl uh, when they lost to the Patriots in Houston, you know, we sent 22 people out there. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I was amazed. I mean, they come 22 people, 22 single rooms for a week at a time at the Super Bowl. That was, that's a pretty darn big commitment. I mean, we made tons of money, obviously. And it was, uh, you, you know, you would do things like that. I mean, you would, uh, like the women's final four was coming to Charlotte. I don't know why I randomly think about that, but we sent somebody to each of the four regionals there. I remember going out to, Seattle and covering a women's regional with nobody, you know, with like Stanford and Washington and whatever playing out there. But we wanted to be grounded and do those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, the Observer staffed every NASCAR race for something like 35 years. Uh, You know, everywhere they went, we went. I mean, I 
more than once Tom Higgins decided suddenly to take a week off and I was they thought I knew about stock car racing, which I really didn't, but I guess I could fake it. And I'm like, Oh, I got to go to Martinsville. Oh, I got, you know, so <laughs> I saw my share of, uh, plenty of stock car races, but, uh, yeah, newspapers used to, you know, if you, people now who don't even know what it was like then, uh, to pick up an Atlanta paper on Sunday during college football season, oh, man. or to pick, or to, if you got access to a Boston globe with, you know, a full page of notes on golf, on basketball, on football, on baseball all the time. Boy, it was just, I mean, you know, they just dropped you right down in a library every day. So what do you miss the most and maybe the least? I'm curious about, you know, the, the, the typical trip to Durham, Cameron Indoor Stadium for a Duke Carolina night game. Obviously you probably miss that, but do you miss, after a one point double overtime nine o'clock <laughs> game sitting in front of a blank con- computer screen and going, Oh shit, <laughs> what am I going to write? Sort yeah, of. Um, yeah. I, I sort of miss. Yeah. I, I miss what, I mean, it's not all gone, but I miss what ACC basketball was when I was there in the middle of it. I mean, even at Greenville when Cliff had, you know, Eldon Campbell and Dale Davis and those really, really good teams. And, and, you know, suddenly that Clemson was part of it, and that's back again, I think, this year. But, you know, they were part of that whole frenzy that was there. And then being up in the triangle and being around that for so many years, I mean, uh, it was, you know, great fun going to Cameron. And, uh, you know, every game felt like a big game there. And I'm, I, I spanned the time. I was at Mike Krzyzewski's introductory press conference. I was at Jim Balvano's introductory press conference, and this makes me sound very, very old, obviously. <laughs> but uh, and you know, and seeing that, and being around Shishovsky through the years, and being able to do a couple really big things with him, you know, I remember at Carolina. I mean, Roy was a graduate assistant. I used to eat lunch with Roy Williams and the high school basketball coach, and play golf with him from time to time. And so I met Roy, you know, when when he was still driving the television show around to TV stations on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings and stuff. And, you know, and to be part of that, I loved going to those big games and football, too. I mean, you know, whether it was Clemson, whether it was, you know, a big game at State or whatever, um, you know. And it's funny because you, you learn to sort of see beyond the jerseys, you know. I mean, uh, Les Robinson and Dick Sheridan are just – couldn't have been nicer to me through the years. And, you know, uh, people say, you hate state. Well, I, I like, you know, I consider myself kind of friends with those guys. I still see less every year at the beach. And, uh, you know, like that, like Duke, my wife, who's a diehard Tar Heel, like, how can you like Duke basketball? I said, oh, Duke basketball's great. I mean, you know, I remember sitting beside, Feinstein tells the story that, we're sitting there, the Duke Vegas game, when they're trying to win that national championship for the first time. And uh, they're down by like five or something. And I'm sitting right beside John Feinstein, whose association with Duke is very well known. And yeah, obviously he's nervous, but I'm nervous too. And uh, Bobby Hurley hits, you know, Christian Leitner hits the most famous shot in Duke basketball history. Feinstein and I agree that Bobby Hurley hit the most important shot because he hit a three-pointer that brought him back within one possession late against Vegas and they beat him. And I, and I'm Pinesine says, you know, as soon as he hit that shot, you hit me on the arm says, they're going to win this game. They're going to win this game. I guess I did. But, uh, you know, being part of that and getting, you know, 
I miss those things. Now it's fun to be, you know, you get some of that doing what I do now, whether it's Phil winning the Open Championship at Muirfield when you never expected it or or Tiger coming back and winning that 15th major out of just like, did that really, really just happen? And, you know, seeing some of that, being at Ryder Cups and all that, you know, you get that. But, yeah, I miss the games and, and the people. And, you know, a lot of my peers are all long, either gone or out of the business. And, you know, press rooms, I, and you, you understand that. I mean, there's something to being in a press room. And especially when you had sort of the same group, you know, you'd get to the big games and everybody was there. And it was, you know, you're there an hour too early. And, you know, uh, and, and there was fun in writing. If you had something to write, it was fun in writing on deadline. I still sort of make myself write on deadline because I think it sort of focuses me a little bit. And I didn't enjoy sitting, you know, you're sitting there at Cameron Indoor Stadium with that little wooden table and nowhere to move. And you're, you're, you're trying to wonder how you're going to get out because your deadline's 11. It's 11.06. There's 45 seconds to go. And it's still a one-possession game. And, you you know, they're sitting back there cussing you in Charlotte. I'm like, well, I can't sing your story till the game's over. So and how am I going to sprint out and get out of here before, you know, during a dead ball? Um, you know, th- those are nice memories now. But, uh, you know, football and basketball seasons when I, you know, I find myself like, mm, it'd be fun to be there. If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home, commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to UptownRealtySC.com. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm, Smith & Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-350. Zero seven. You mentioned people saying, oh, you're at NC State. Uh, you don't like NC State because you went to North Carolina. I went to South Carolina. So, of course, um, uh, you know, some Clemson fans say, oh, well, he went there. So, therefore, he's a Gamecock fan. And then Gamecock fans say, oh, he's been in Clemson cover on Clemson for 18 years. So, he's a Clemson fan. People draw their own lines is my point. How have you navigated that? And uh, what do you – do you have a response when people tell you – what you are or what you believe or who you're pulling for or not. Yeah. I get less of that. Now I get accused of being a PGA tour homer now as opposed to live. And I, I would probably say, well, yeah, I, I, 
guilty as charged. Um, I mean, and I know people on the live golf side, they've been very nice to me. I was talking to one of their executives today and, you know, if they can make this work good, I don't, I'm not a big fan of what they're trying to do and how they're trying to do it. But, uh, that doesn't mean I don't like the people associated with it. But yeah, I, I remember when I was working in the so-called Raleigh Bureau, uh, covering Duke State, North Carolina, in the space of one week, I got letters or emails, I can't remember what, but accusing me of being a fan of all three schools <laughs> and hating the other ones. So I'm like, okay, maybe that's pretty good. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I just deal with, yeah, you know, and my wife would vouch for this. I think people would be surprised by how little I care now about who wins. Sure. I mean, I'd like to see the Panthers win more games than whatever they won this year, you know. Uh, and so, I'm, you know, I sit in my Panther seats and pull for them and, you know, but I'm, you know, I, I just, I don't care that much. I, you know, when it gets to NCAA tournament time, I'm pulling for every ACC school. I'm one of those guys who wants them to do well and all that. But, you know, I watch, I watch Virginia basketball, you know, and Tony Bennett played for the Hornets when I covered him. When I covered him, I covered Tony and got to know him back then. You know, I appreciate what they did. I pre- uh, my dad used to get asked all the time. He's always accused of being a Carolina fan. Uh, and he never went to college. Oh, your dad, you know, Chapel Hill guy, went to school. I'm like, no, he went to Central High School in downtown wow. Charlotte. That was it. And uh, and he was asked, well, why do you cover Carolina basketball so much? He goes, well, I I cover excellence and I cover success. And that's, and they, you know, that was a heyday of Dean. But he wrote a lot of Krzyzewski, you know, things like that, too. Um, he covered state back in the Everett Case days and all that stuff. Um, you know, so I think a lot of it is perception. Uh, just, you know, you read into it what you want to sometimes. Uh, well, this guy's that, you know. I uh, There was a guy back when I was working at The Observer, and I don't know why one of our assistant sports editors would talk to this guy, but he – just didn't like me at all being a Tar Heel. And he was the most, I mean, he was a Duke guy beyond, I mean, it was a little worrisome. It's almost like, how can anybody be that, you know, consumed with some Duke basketball, Duke basketball, and just, you know, couldn't see anything but that in any slight or whatever, and always complain about me doing this, me doing that, talking to our editors. And the guy would call me once in a while, and I just, you know, tolerate him. And it, and it comes out later. Uh, it really bugged him because he talked to Shashevsky about me, and Mike had said, and he found out Mike liked me, and it just bugged him. <laughs> it 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 shattered everything he had believed about you for yeah, probably yeah, years. And, and, and so, like, well, wait a minute, I don't understand why Coach K like. I think he called me Tar Heel Junior. Like, Tar Heel Junior. <laughs> That's fantastic. Let's talk about access. You mentioned your dad sat in Danny Ford's hotel room the night before his the Gator Bowl, uh, his first game as a coach. That thing would probably never happen today. Uh, there's so many more barriers out there, so many uh, more attempts to control the message by coaches or by handlers or PR firms. How have you navigated that? I'm I'm sure that it, it still helps that you have been around for so long and that you have such a 
such a respected name that you're still able to uh, have relationships with a lot of these prominent golfers and such. But how how what is the the nature of that nowadays, especially with with some of these golfers just being worth so freaking much now? Of course, with with live and all that. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I, there were days when I could walk in the Clemson football office, and whether I was going to uh, Lawson Holland's office or Woody McCorvey's or Miles Aldridge's or somebody back then, you could just go in there and not go, hey, do you have a minute? Uh, and, you know, you couldn't do that. I mean, now most places you got to have thumbprints or palm prints or something to even get in the door. And, uh, yeah, access has changed. I mean, I think part of it is while the – the newspaper part of it has declined. I think there's so much other media type things and, and trying to keep that at bay a little bit. I, you know, I think there, there are far too many layers. I mean, uh, getting messaging, right. You know, athletes now, particularly pro athletes can control their own message if they want to. Uh, I remember trying to do a, wanting to do a story with Ricky Fowler, uh, about, not about golf, but we were doing these things where you'd try to go sit down and have breakfast or lunch with them and just talk about other things. We'd call it no reservations. And you just, you know, I've done it with Brandel Chambly and Brooks Kepka and Rory and others. And I was just like, hey, I'd love to sit down and talk to Ricky. And I was talking to his agent one day and the manager while Ricky's warming up. He goes, no, we're not interested in that. Uh, we, we prefer to control all the, uh, anything personal, anything about Ricky. We're going to control all that. We're, we're, we don't, we're not interested in sharing that with other people. We'll do it ourselves. And that's sort of where it is in a lot of places. Um, you know, I mean, trying to get them there. One of the bad parts about the PGA Tour is, particularly for the top players, is when they do you know, whether it's a press conference or, you know, what we call the flash area, when they come out after they ran the sander cards, they come over there and talk to PGA tour radio. They talk to, you know, whatever network's doing it. And we get a little moment or two with them. Uh, they have their managers there to who cut yeah. it off. Who man, like, all right, this is enough time to go. We got to go. He's got to go do this. He's got to go do that. Now, Tom Brady, doesn't have his manager standing beside him when he's doing a press conference saying no more. Now they do have team officials, but you know, I think there's, there's a lot of, you know, that they, they really protect them a lot. There's, there's a lot of that. I mean, you can get to players and, but you know, I try to work ahead if I need something really big from somebody really big. I mean, uh, you know, through the years, if I needed Phil, he had a guy and I'm like, all right, I, particularly early in the week, you know, go out to a pro-am or a practice round. Tell him, he said, all right, Bill says, come out here. Let him get four or five holes in this pro-am. Meet him here, and he'll take a hole and walk with you and you know, do a walk and talk, and you get your work done there. And if you know players, that they can do that. I mean, uh, I was able to do that with Tiger several times and got him some other places. But, you know, some of that just comes with years of doing it and being around. Some guys just force their way in. Uh, but yeah, there, there are more layers. You know, the tour is more hands-on managing its players, uh, controlling, you know, then they've got their own, I mean, they want to do their PGA tour media and video and all that stuff that they, you know, they'll take has a certain propriety. Um, so it's, it's hard. It's harder than it was. I think, I, I think, uh, maybe there's more, you know, I mean, I don't know. Again, I, I remember sitting at Duke one day in the sports information office, uh, 
uh, and Grant Hill's just sitting in there, just hanging out, eating lunch or something, you know, just something you probably wouldn't get anymore. Just having a guy like that, just sit around and chit chatting about things. And, uh, um, you know, even on the tour, you know, I, I mean, I got it, I could live last, I went to the last live event in Doral back in whatever it was, October. I wanted to talk to a couple guys and, you know, they were very nice. They're trying to help everybody and uh, they understand what they're up against. You know, but they got me one-on-one time with a couple guys and, uh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't an hour, but, you know, you get Bryson DeChambeau to go sit down in a chair and talk to you for 10 or 15 minutes uh, by yourself. That's where you can, you know, when you can get it beyond what you get in the press conferences, a lot of times the, the things you want are going to come out of the press conferences, but, you know, that's where if, if you know a Rory McElroy or whatever, you're like, hey, when you finish, can I just ask you one question over here about something um, that makes a huge difference? So with in Phil's case, he has been disgraced, of course, in a huge way. How do you handle that when you have a relationship with him? And I mean, I mean have you had to criticize him? And, and if you have, do you get blowback from him? Like, hey, man, I thought we were thought we were tight or you're going to get see some repercussions no. for that thing you wrote. Well, I haven't seen him. I mean, I've seen him a couple of times at live events briefly, not had a long conversation. I mean, I've been fortunate. I mean, had dinner with him two or three times. He used to host a thing here on Saturday nights during the Wells Fargo and invite a few of us. And, uh, you know, so he, you know, I've probably spent more time away from the course with him than about anybody uh, back in the day. It's been a while now. Uh, it's funny. I'm written. My Monday column is about Phil Mickelson and seeing him pop back up at the Saudi International this week. And we hadn't seen him in three months or four months. He's lost weight. He looks sort of gaunt because he's lost 20 pounds. And I think it's you know he's sort of catching up to his weight loss. And uh, but I was just writing about you know he's he lives on the the other side of the world in a lot of ways. And this week they're playing at Pebble Beach and. He won Pebble Beach five times. He's part of it. You know, he should have been there. And this, but this is where the world is. This is the choice he made, and all that. So, uh, you know, he, I'm sure he could. You know, he's always one who will. He would let you know something if he'd read it. He could let you know one way or the other. I mean, to his credit, when Amy got sick years ago and they announced she had breast cancer, I wrote a column about Amy, just about, you know. Most you've probably seen her on TV, but you know, she's this, you know, Daisy walking around in this golf tournament, you know, she's this flower and what a nice person she is and how, how that, how hard it landed for everybody to hear that news and all that stuff. And I'm sitting a few days later, actually at Charlotte Motor Speedway as a racist droning on. And, uh, <laughs> I get a phone call. I don't know who the number is. I answered this Phil calling to thank me for that call. And, uh, you know, players never do that. But Phil called and said, thank you, what it meant to them and all that. So, you know, that was good, Phil. Years ago, several years ago, when he was playing the U.S. Open at Shinnecock, you may remember this. He didn't like, you know, he's never been big on U.S. Open setups. He got frustrated there and started batting the ball back and forth on the one of the greens, you know. Chases it down, hits a moving ball, and just uh, violates every rule in the book and just, you know, Makes, I mean, just embarrasses himself. And, uh, you know, to his credit, he came out and stood there and answered questions afterwards and, you know, but was pretty angry about what they had done to the golf course and didn't do himself any favors. Anyway, 
uh, at that point in time, Fox Sports was doing handling U.S. Open broadcasts. And uh, we had a deal with them where I was on once or twice a day with Fox during the U.S. Open. And my colleague, uh, John Hopkins, who's a longtime writer from the London Times and, you know, the great Brit's got the accent and he's got sort of disheveled and just this great character, tremendous writer. And so he and I are on uh, the morning, the day after. And uh, ironically, with Holly Saunders, as I recall, you might remember her. And anyway, so the Phil thing comes up. And uh, he's asking both of us, so what do you make of Phil's actions yesterday? And uh, Hoppy goes, well, as we would say in Britain, he's a silly ass. I'm a chump as well. Uh, <laughs> now, backgrounding, they, John had asked, could he say this on TV? And the producers and the people are like, no, we, we don't want to say ass on TV, not on American TV. Well, it's different in England, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, maybe, but we're on TV here, so don't say that. And then, of course, the last minute, Holly Saunders says, I think you can say that. Go ahead and say that. So we come on, and he's doing it, and I'm sitting right there, and, you know, people say, friends of mine said, they looked at me like, and you could see me like, mm. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> squirming uh so anyway it goes on and you know later did john just really call him a silly ass on tv and so yeah anyway a few weeks later at a tournament uh hopkins takes it upon himself after phil's finished doing his interview he walks up and says by the way i'm john hopkins da, 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 da. <laughs> Whether you heard it or not, I just want to apologize. I'm the man who called you a silly ass on national television. And I don't remember if Phil said uh, he had heard it or not, but he said, no apology necessary. What I did that day deserved whatever anybody said about me. No problem. Wow. And went on. So, uh, so you know, you get that every once in a while. Good for him. Yeah. So... In terms of, like, your dad was eating breakfast with Arnold Palmer before he won the Masters. I don't think you're eating breakfast with Tiger Woods before he uh, no, he plays no. the Masters. What is the – and I also want to include Michael Jordan in this because he's just such a towering figure in Charlotte. When you're covering the NBA, do you feel like, man, i got to find a way to develop a relationship with this guy? Maybe you already had one. I don't know. I'm just curious the nature of, of those types of, of – uh, access and relationships when the figures are just almost larger than life. Yeah. I mean, it was different back in my dad's day, obviously. And, and Arnie had not won a major championship. That was, he had drinks with him the Saturday night before and the had breakfast the morning of in 58 when he won his first masters wow. and they, you know, had developed a relationship and it lasted for decades. And, you know, I've got to sort of ride along on the coattails of that later on to some degree. Uh, you know, my dad hitched a ride to the golf course with Byron Nelson one morning because <laughs> the guy he he and another guy rode down together. And the other guy had the car, and he said, "Mind if I ride with him?" Nelson's hop in, and you know, I don't think I'd hop in with uh, Tiger. And uh, but although I've gotten to do some pretty cool things with him, but uh, yeah, you know, I have a picture. Too bad this is, uh, or maybe it's a good thing that this is, isn't a video thing because I have a picture in my phone of 
me sitting in the locker room, I think in Syracuse during an NCAA tournament, talking to Michael when he was playing at Carolina. It's just wow. two of us sitting there. Hugh Morton took, and I have actually sprained and uh, all that, and and I've shown it around. Michael has seen it. Uh, um, friends sent it to him one day while we were together, and sent Michael this thing. It's like answered him, and Michael answered immediately. The good old days. Oh, and, that's uh, cool. Uh, so yeah. I knew him back then, and I mean, I saw his first game at Carolina, and has played in the old Charlotte Coliseum here, and gotten to know him through the years, and would see him randomly. When I covered the NBA, he was still playing, so I mean, it was you know the circus all around them. Uh, but I, I would see him like every two years at the Ryder Cup because he had all these inside the ropes things with NBC, and we'd end up walking a hole or two together, and just it always stayed because of golf, because of golf, and. Uh, you know, and he would, you know, if he'd see me somewhere, he would sort of nod and wave and everything. And uh, so I don't see him, you know, he's here with the Hornets once in a while. I haven't seen him much in forever. And uh, a mutual friend of ours, Ed I. Bargwin, who's the longtime golf pro at Duke University, started at Carolina, got the job at Duke, been there for 30 some years. Uh, he gets awarded the Lifetime Achievement or gets inducted in the PGA of America hall of fame for their great club pros through the years so he's nice enough he asked me they do a video somebody needs to write the video and sort of uh narrate the video about me would i do it so i'm like sure he goes i want it to be not about me i want it to be about other people people who helped me through my careers and he names off three or four club pros and people who've been very influential in the business and i said and what about michael he goes oh of course michael I said, well, okay, now here's the trick. I got to get to Michael. He goes, that's no problem. He said, I'll tell him. And so I'm like, okay, sure. And, and, and I mean, so Michael at least remembers me that much. And so Ed sends him notes that says, here's what we're going to do. Would you do this? And Michael's like, sure. Just send him my number. Uh, tell him to text me and we'll set up a time. So sure enough, gives me a number and I text Michael. And he's like, sure, I can't do it. And he, call, he tells me I'm, he's going to be on a plane. Uh, coming to Charlotte, I'll call you when I land. It didn't happen or something. So I'm sitting there like, okay, now do I text him back because he didn't call me, you know, or not? <laughs> yeah. And then I get this text from him about a, two days later. Hey, sorry, got tied up, meant to call you. Is now a good time? And I'm in the grocery store with my <laughs> wife, and I said, now this is the move here. I'm going to tell Michael, can you give me a few minutes? <laughs> <laughs> and so I texted him back. It's still somewhere on my phone. Text him back and say, Hey, can we do it in 10 minutes? I get the little thumbs up emoji <laughs> thing. And so, you know, get on the phone. And uh, sure enough, 10 minutes. I don't remember if I called him or he called me, but yeah. Tamara's just, my wife's in, she's in my office because I got her on speaker. So I have the tape recorder going. She's like, you're talking to Michael Jordan. And just, you know, he was fantastic about all this. We started talking a little bit about golf. And I said, yeah, you know, he's got his own club now in Florida. It's called Grove 23. Dustin Johnson and Kepka and all the tour guys are, most of them are there and they had to buy their way in. I mean, he didn't comp them, but uh, at the end I said, so I, I hear you got a pretty good golf course down there. He goes, yeah, you hadn't played it. I said, no, never have. I said, you know, uh, I just have to figure out a way to get on. He goes, just tell him you know the owner. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so one of these days. 
how about with Tiger? I mean, I, I, I could be wrong here, but it, late nineties, it seems like he was maybe the first athlete that was just so insulated and managed and distant. Um, is that, does that square with your recollections as well? And then how has that relationship just happened organically just over time? Well, he's certainly in golf. I mean, he was like nobody else. And it was, there was a wall, there was a famous story, uh, or there was a story about him, maybe as after he'd won his first master or something, but it's still early, probably late nineties. One of the managers, one of the guys working for IMG when he was there, uh, was not the main guy, but he was involved in all the decision-making. And there was a story about how nobody could get to tiger. And, uh, there was a quote in it. I think it was a USA Today story. Somebody said, well, you know, we reject 99% of the things that are, that come tigers away. And we're sitting around impression. We asked this guy, Bev Norwood says, well, how do you think that looks? Uh, when they, when somebody says, well, we reject 99% of what comes tigers away. He goes, well, it looks wrong because we reject a hundred percent of what comes tigers away. <laughs> God, <laughs> goodness. Uh, but, Patterson, who now is the media director for the Wells Fargo Championship and several other events, was a tour um, media official back in the day. <clears throat> and Lee's got the southern charm and just, you know, uh, wants to know if you want to go get barbecue and all that stuff. Just as laid back as they come. <clears throat> and he got to know Tiger. And he told Tiger, if you're going to be out here a long time. You need to meet people who are going to be out here that you can trust and going to be around you and you need to know who they are. Hmm. And so the one year tiger played Hilton head in advance of the, uh, <clears throat> 99 us open at Pinehurst. It's Andrew doing some stuff. Lee got me one-on-one with tiger. We sat in a little locker room at Harbor town for, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes. And I'm just, you know, sort of doing the Q and a with him about everything from what's it like in your head when you're over a shot to, what kind of candy bars he was eating and what's your favorite meal and what are you scared of? Those sorts of things. And just sat there and talked to Tiger. <clears throat> so we made the connection then. And then just through the years being around, uh, you know, just developed it. And I got to, you know, there are other guys who were probably closer to him. Uh, and I'm sure other guys are closer to him and who have probably out there more during every week. And, you know, the way you do it is you'd go out, Tuesday when he's playing a practice round, you go out and just sort of tag along. We would be able to get inside the ropes and go walk. And and then you're, you know, you're talking to him about this and that. And and he's, you know, telling you a bad joke or whatever. And, you know, just not 18 holes, but two or three holes at a time. And just get there and, you know, go out there during a tournament and be inside the ropes. And, you know, we are, whether vain enough or whatever, but, you wouldn't mind letting them see you out there on a tee on the fifth hole somewhere away from the clubhouse. Like, okay, they're out here watching me, you know? Uh, so they see a little bit of an investment there. Um, but he's been good. I mean, and knowing his agent and, uh, he had a media guy who I know, uh, who was really good for him. Then he's not, they're not working together anymore, but that helped me and, and coordinate things. I was do stories. I remember doing a story about David Duvall doing this giant Duvall takeout. And Tiger, I needed his voice in it because, I mean, he was the guy who challenged Tiger. And, you know, I couldn't get him on the phone, but I sent the guy an email said, here's my questions. Four or five, you know, a couple hours later, here's Tiger's answers, you know, which was like, that was pretty cool. Huh. Um, and, uh, you know, when they uh, 
when he opened his first golf course design in Cabo, uh, they invited four or five writers down there to come see it, write about it, be part of it. Got to play a few holes with them. Uh, and there, and when he opened his first one in the United States outside Houston, I uh, was there too. And both times, uh, they like give me his Twitter account and I get the, Hey, tiger tweets, like my, my, Friend Ron Green is going to be tweeting for me while I do this. Follow along so you can see what's going on here as we open Blue Jack Nashville. We open Diamante. Uh, so it was kind of, you know, that was kind of cool. It didn't really add any followers to me. And mostly all I did was take pictures of him hitting shots and turn to the his media guy. Is this okay? I don't want to say something <laughs> wrong. Or just, and uh, But, you know, being around those things and, uh, you know, just, I mean, we sat down in the locker room at Quail Hollow one day for – 30 minutes and uh he was getting ready to work out and he ends up stretching out on a bench in front of a locker just talking and you know those things are just great you you know not everybody was able to get those and uh i hadn't seen him much in a while just because the schedules are if i've been somewhere you know too hard to get there but um that's uh, i've been very fortunate there it's almost like the tiger and media thing is a great portrait for where we are and 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 why things are the way they are now in a way in, in the sense of uh, things are so managed with so many of these guys that you just mentioned, you know, you're just walking along with him and he's being himself and he tells a, you know, a crude joke or something. Well, you're not going to go tweet the freaking joke or, or write about it. Right. There's an understanding there. And so in that way, the media has kind of made its own bet a little bit because of the desire to, create a sensation or to just, you know, write everything that a person says when he's, you know, just cutting up and, and being casual. And there's a price to be paid for that too. If you can't, you know, sort of hold up your end of the deal in terms of like, Hey, I'm not just going to play gotcha here. I just want to develop a relationship. Yeah. Well, that goes back to when he was just coming out, just bursting mm-hmm. on the scene, this supernova and Charlie Pierce wrote a story for GQ or whatever. And starts the story of the top of the story is Tiger in a car there together and Tiger telling a, a dirty joke and yep. he uses it. Yep. And that burned Tiger and it just like that helped. But I think Tiger has always been very insular in that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, having been around it, having seen it, having, you know, walked through the ropes with him at tournaments and all that stuff and been in media rooms, I mean, it's hard to explain how big he has been and what he means and all that comes with it. I mean, it's just, you know, then after all that happened and uh, him coming back, I mean, to a point they would limit access to Tiger's press conferences the first few events back after all the personal stuff and all that. You'd have to get a wristband and they'd let you in and not everybody could come in, all that stuff. It's It's been a story unlike any personal story. You know, you, you couldn't invent all this stuff. All right, I've had you for a long time, but I have to get your account of two anecdotes that you shared on the Southbound podcast with Tommy Tomlinson. You have played golf with Tiger Woods, as you just said, and also Donald Trump. I want to hear about outdriving Tiger and also the anecdote about Trump and uh, him picking up his putts, the gimme, the quote-unquote gimme putts. Yeah, we, we played a few holes with Tiger when he opened his golf course, and yes, out driving might be slightly <laughs> inaccurate because I hit a driver. He did not, but we're playing, uh, I don't know, 
I don't remember if it's, I guess anyway, one of those. And I hit a really good tee shot. And his caddy goes walking on by Tiger's ball to my ball, which is out in front. <laughs> and I stand there sort of awkwardly said, I this this is mine, that's Tiger's back there. <laughs> so uh later on, after Tiger <laughs> walks over to me and says, They told me you were gonna be the good player in among these guys. Hmm. Guess they got that wrong. <laughs> I said and I said, Yeah, they did today. And uh but Later, I said, hey, I am can't wait to get home and tell the stories about hitting past you on whatever hole it was. I said, I know I hit a driver, and you probably hit three wood there, but I can leave that part out. And he goes, five wood, not three wood. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I'm going to conveniently leave that part out. <laughs> and then when Trump had bought uh golf course north of Charlotte, it used to be called the points. Now it's whatever, Trump National Charlotte something. Uh I got invited along with Jaime Diaz to play with Trump and Greg Norman, who had designed the golf course. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty cool thing. Uh, it was very intimidating to stand on the first tee and be able to see Greg Norman's shoes <laughs> underneath my visor because he's standing so close to me as I'm making my first swing watching me. And, uh, and I got airborne and got out there. Okay. But, uh, Anyway, so, you know, Trump had just bought this property. He's all jazzed up, and he, he's Mr. Salesman, Mr., you know, all about what he's done and how great it's going to be. It's going to be the greatest golf course in North Carolina. And we're like, Hunter's number two is pretty good. And this is nice, but, you know, uh, you know. Uh, but, you know, he was – I remember Jaime Diaz and I walking out later, and Jaime says, what do you think? I said, I think we got the good Trump. He goes, yeah. He goes, yeah. He he was very much the salesman, chatty, you know, wanting to buy hot dogs, hamburgers, all this stuff. But anyway, we're playing around. It's very casual around. Nobody's really keeping score. But, you know, which was a good thing, I think, for all of us. Uh, And uh, so finally on about the fifth or sixth hole, he's got about a 30-footer for a birdie or whatever. He puts it up there to about five feet. And – Walks up and just uh, swipe, picks it up with his putter and walks on. All right, let's go. And, uh, and I just say something like, nah, I've never seen you miss one of those. And then, of course, I've never seen him putt one of those. But he's a good player. I mean, you know, mm. you can say what you want about him, but he's done a lot for golf. Not always, doesn't always, you know, I mean, the live thing is contentious, but uh, what he's done with golf courses and he does care about golf. He understands it a good bit. And I think, uh, you know, their golf courses where he's taken them and made them better. And, uh, you know, if, if he could sometimes get out of his own way, he might have had those major championships he wants. But uh, <laughs> it was a fun day, you know. Offered me a ride to New York that night in his jet, and I should have taken it. But I was going the next day, and I had to pass. I, I, I sort of regret that now. Would have been a hell of a story. Yeah. Ron, you've been enormously uh, generous with your time and I am enormously grateful that you have shared it really 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 appreciate it well thanks I enjoyed it it's fun it, uh, I guess we have been talking a while it went by fast so maybe that's a good thing ha indeed that's the that's the mark of a of a good podcast I think when you when you look at your watch and it's been over an hour and it feels like about 20 minutes that was a great conversation with, with Ron I really genuinely hate it that guys like that aren't still frequenting our press boxes and writing about college football and basketball here in the Carolinas and beyond, well beyond. Appreciate the support of our sponsors for continuing to help make this happen. 
And then, of course, thanks to every single one of you for listening and hitting that play button. Really appreciate it. Cheers.